Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Welcome back to the Fraudology Podcast. I am always so happy to have this guest join me, not only because it means that Spec is sponsoring this quarter again, and I'm just so grateful uh, for their continued support, but also because we get to nerd out. And this topic is one that I know so many people are worried about and concerned about and talking about in your orgs. So I think this will be a good one. Nate Carl, welcome back to Fraudology. Thank you for having me back. And I am an honored to be your nerd out guest. <laughs> you are. I, I love it. It's, I mean, we, let's be fair, we nerd out off air too, but it's always good to get to check in with you because you guys get to see so many things that I think a lot of other perspectives maybe see the outcomes of and, and they see, you know, signs of, but they don't really know what's happening. Uh, and you guys get to see what's happening because of where spec sits and, and what spec gets visibility into. And so you're able to kind of help answer the what is going on questions. Uh, the internet is a scary place. Lots of uh, lots of fun <laughs> stuff happens outside the, uh, the, the borders of a, of a given firewall. Uh, so yes, it's, uh, it's a little wild being out on the internet and kind of like watching the weather patterns of things moving, but it's always fun to come in from the storms as it will. I'm, I'm saying that while looking out a window where there are these like apocalyptic storms happening in the Bay Area. Uh, but it's, it's nice to come in out of the rain and just like kind of talk about what's going on out there. I do talk about fraud as if it's weather, right? Like you're predicting the weather, but also like studying the current weather patterns. And I think that's really what you guys are doing and getting to see how the other side is trying to attack good organizations like it has a season right i mean like if you and, and this is I, i'm not i'm the last person to touch the fraud triangle right like just like uh, it's been touched too many times i've touched it too many times done with it but that said it's just like when needs go up you know attacks happen because people need money or when the ease comes up attacks happen because it's just easier to go out and grab it so like, yes there's, there's absolutely some seasonality that goes into it uh, and which is like a lot of what we've been talking about yeah well yeah and the seasonality you know depending on different types of companies but you know what they provide but then there's also seasonality and the type of attacks too right and I think, you know when you came in I think it was Q3 and we talked about how bots and also just you know criminals were attacking third party providers and really the you know the connection between um either e-commerce companies or banks with their third party fraud providers especially through API that was something that was a game changer for a lot of people to understand because they've been seeing the effects of that and going what is going on it all, it feels like they're almost figuring out like what tool we use or figuring out how to stay just right below the radar. How are they doing that? And you know, you came to just shine light on that and say, well, we're watching it happen. And here's, here's what they're doing. And today's kind of a related topic, you know, a little different where there's been so many different bot attacks and the type of 
or really the technology behind bots that are attacking online companies has just been growing so fast that traditional companies and traditional bot detection tools really can't keep up. And so I know I'm hearing from a lot of online companies and banks and fintechs, and you guys are too, you know, saying, how are these getting through, right? Like how are we have bot detection? So why is it not detecting them? Or, you know, we have this tool in place that seemed to be working fine. And all of a sudden we're just getting hammered by tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of attempts a day. And that throws everything off in the company from reporting to just everything. And so that's what I wanted you to come on and talk about today was you know, what is going on, right? Like, why are, why are, why is this happening? What, who's behind it? What can be done about it? All of those things. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I think one of the things that's interesting is that bots have been a problem for a really, really long time. I'm kind of like telling on myself, but like when I was uh, a much younger man, uh, like you'll say like 2003, 2004 era, there were a lot of like, we called them scripts or we called them like script kitties. Like these yeah. were basically people who were these wannabe hackers. It was frowned upon, but like that was kind of like the start point of it. Of like, could you go out and I'm going to date myself again, but like war dial the entire internet and find every website out there and then figure out what she wanted to do with it from there. It was like really dumb. You just kind of like, we have pressed play and it put played through a list. But what we have today, there's just been this huge evolutionary like movement between then and now. It, it's really interesting because like whenever you talk to somebody about like, they say like, hey, I I have a bot problem and it's like okay here you say that you have a bot problem but like what does it actually mean to like to your business like what's actually happening because right. for a given person they they might mean something entirely different um and then like we can talk more about like how that's really built out over time. But I think what we're seeing right now is this intersection between and we talked about this last time I was on where like the ability to block and manipulate data and the sophistication around that is now playing into the way that bots are developed. Uh, and like we talked a little bit about AI bots, but just like the ability to, so as a fraud, you know, as someone who defends against fraud, you understand that there are, you know, millions of stolen or synthetic identities out there that can be used and attacked. There are IP addresses that are, you know, harvested out of bot networks that come out of like people's residences. Maybe it's like their webcam uh, or, you know, their security service. Yeah. So IP addresses their are cam, their baby monitor, their totally. picture frame, their every IoT device, right? Uh-huh. You know, so like you just so you you feed that to a bot and let it do what it's want to do. Like there's effectively like an unlimited number of uh, you know fake email addresses with BS history. There are just uh, you know device emulation is incredibly lifelike now. So there's all of this fake data now, and then when you start to really weave that together with bots, that creates this horrific scenario. We're now dealing with bots that kind of shape shift in and out of looking human uh, and also find their own ways to get things done without being explicitly told what to do. Uh, just like learning their way through your defenses, uh, which is a, a very wild present to be living in considering where we came from. So true. And it's such a good history because as I was kind of talking a little about bots, I was like, you know, we call a lot of things bots, but they do a lot of different things. And we use the same terminology for something, you know, 20 years ago that meant something so different than what it is now. And I think that maybe, you know, the first place I'd love to start is kind of, you know, the metamorphosis of bots, like where from a online protection standpoint, right, from an online company or online bank, 
scenario that are protecting themselves against scripted attacks. What types of scripted attacks were they protecting themselves against, you know, 10, 15 years ago? And what department within those organizations owned that, right? Like that made sense. Let's maybe start there, then we'll go. Totally. Yeah. So like a little bit of uh, instant me history. So was, uh, I was at Akamai as we were building like the first security product there. Uh, like the first things that we started out with were like web application firewalls. Like how can we find people who are like testing the solidity of like applications that are out on the internet? Um, that's when like uh, like web apps were becoming like really, really popular. Uh, and then that grew into looking, you know, stopping DDoS and looking for bots, right? And like that was like that first part of it. And the things that we were defending against were like, um, there's a tool called a high orbit ion cannon, which was like a big, loud, dumb bot that a lot of people had access to. And they would use stolen identities and stolen, like, basically emails and passwords to try to break into banks. And then what ended up happening is, like, rate controls were really great at shutting that down. And they're like, all right, we took high orbit ion cannon, we called it HOIC because, uh, like, lazy corporate speak. And, like, the, the developers of that turned it into something called low orbit ion cannon, which is, like, horribly no good product now. Uh, but what they did is like, here is a bot that can be configured to go much more slowly and can be distributed to run on a phone, to run on some cloud server somewhere so that you could spread it out all over the place and just like very slowly try to test your way through uh, logins by just like sending independent requests, like not trying to de- emulate a device or anything like that. So like the, the evolution coming forward is like, okay, we're going to do some work. We're going to make sure that there's real devices that are running a real browser environment. Uh, and then we got into these headless bots. And these headless bots basically started to simulate what a human interaction with a browser would output uh, and then kind of recreate the network signature to make that happen. So like every time that we would do something, you know, on the defense side to try to stop a bot, the bots would kind of leap forward and leap forward and leap forward. So, you know, I think like the current generation of bot tools are really big about pushing uh, like challenges in. Uh, so like, here's a piece of JavaScript that we're going to like slide into the experience and force the browser to do some stuff. Uh, I think one of my favorite things that uh, we're seeing is that we're, uh, like, we're seeing bot providers that force attackers to solve crypto challenges uh, in order to prove that, yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we'll leave that alone. I have a puzzled look on my face, like, huh? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm going to leave that one alone. Uh, but, um, but anyway, like the core of it is like, it just, uh, this evolution of bots along the way is like those capabilities of like that cat and mouse of what do you need to prove to be human enough? Uh, and then today, like a lot of what we're seeing are, uh, they're called a lot of things are called sneaker bots or purchasing bots. But um, like in the, the communities that use them, they call them all in ones. Uh, and these are effectively bots that have a neural network tucked underneath it. When you set them up, they are able to take any sort of payment information you have, any identity information you have, any proxy information you have, and it basically will launch your browser window where you can kind of click through and kind of show it the thing you want it to do. Maybe that's sign up for an account, maybe that's purchase an item. Then you give it kind of a generalized instruction of what you want to happen and you press play and it just figures it out. Uh, So instead of replaying the exact things that you did, it learns, it experiments, it communicates horizontally with other AI agents that are working through it. It's just so you're just like seeing this like next progression of where this is all going. Well, and coming from an ownership perspective, you know, for so long, we've seen InfoSec own bot detection, you know, internally on the company side. And I think that, you know, the reason for that is because, you know, DDoS attacks were such a thing. And, they were seeing it as a technology problem and as something to solve, you know, from technology perspective. But now we're seeing bots being used to commit fraud or 
uh, commit abuse. And now there's like this push pull of, well, who owns it? Right. And a lot of times you see InfoSec making a decision on the top of bot provider that's going to be used, but it's not stopping the bots or the scripted attacks that fraud is seeing downstream. And so, you know, having this kind of push pull between these teams isn't doing anyone any favors either. So, you know, we need to be the cats in this cat and mouse, you know, scenario and try to one up it and be able to catch them for a while. And we can't because we're too busy trying to figure out who owns it and who's picking what, and is that the right thing that you picked? And, you know, I don't want to step on any toes, but at the same time, like you're not helping me any, like it just, that's just an internal problem that we create for ourselves. Totally. You know, and I think one of the, the challenge that we we find over and over again, and this is kind of like the original question, is like, what is a bot, right? So if internally it's like, well, InfoSec's problem is bots and fraud's problem is fraud. It's like, well, if, uh, if we see someone uh, who is trying to log into 100 accounts an hour, then like, okay, like we feel comfortable that's a bot. It's like, okay, but what if it was one, right? Like what if it was one, but like we have 40 of these, uh, like these, perfect human replica AI agents trying to log into this account an hour, right? Um, Is that a bot, right? And if it falls below that threshold of too much volume, or if it looks too human-like, then the classification is not a bot. And this is a very weird thing is most bot providers are the people who are measuring their own performance at catching bots. Uh, so the only time that, you know, we really like throw up a flare is when the fraud team or the payments team or the, you know, the, the trust and safety team or the customer experience team says like, hey, like something's going wrong. And they have to push all the way back up to InfoSec because like we think there might be bots here and like it, InfoSec has to get deeper to, to figure that out. But it's so hard. It's, you know, and I, I think that's kind of like part one is like, you know, would you still call it a bot if it looked from a interaction perspective, exactly like a human? And that's where it gets hard. And what that means for attackers is as attackers get better, they, I don't, I don't think intentionally shift liability for bots from the infosec team to the fraud team, right? They shift liability from the team that has the most technical acumen to the team that struggles the most to get technical support, right? Uh, and it is it is this wild byproduct of like where this cat and mouse game is pushing it. Wow, that's so well said and makes so much sense because, you know, just because it's moving slower doesn't mean that there's not technology behind it. But for those in InfoSec that are wanting to solve technology problems, they're saying, well, there's not a hundred, you know, this device isn't doing this a hundred times an hour. It's only doing it once an hour. Therefore, we're going to decide it's a human. Or our bot detection company told us it was a human and it wasn't a bot, you know, so they didn't have to catch it. Um, but the fraud team is going, but wait, all of the information looks the same, right? Like all of the behavioral information looks the same. The way that they're you know, clicking through the site, the way that you know, they're standardizing the email address, the way that they're, you know, the items that they're purchasing, all of those things scream bot downstream to fraud, but the people who have the most technology resources to solve it from a technological perspective are like, nope, that's a human. And that I have this conversation quite often where, you know, well, we know we have a bot problem, but our InfoSec team tells us that we don't. Yeah. Like, let me give you an example of this, right? And I think this will maybe like help drive this thing home. Like a hypothetical scenario, uh, you are a, like a ticketing and live event experience company and uh, you 
quote unquote, don't have a bot problem. I'm saying quote unquote, because you know, most people will be able to see my, my quote fingers here. Every time that you launch ticket sales for like a high demand event, 85% of your ticket inventory is locked up with people who ultimately don't buy, right? Um, and you quote unquote, don't have a bot problem, but you just have a whole bunch of users who like will like kind of jam into the queue. And then once they get in, they just kind of hold the inventory, right? So in that, that space, like, do you really have hundreds and hundreds of people who are coming in who are really excited they're going to wait in a queue for 15 minutes for the opportunity to purchase these tickets they're going to put you know reserve the maximum number of them and then not check out right so you know and it turns into this fight where the fraud team has to just fight the infosec team it's like no like guys there has to be bots here like dig deeper I know I've been promising to tell you more about SPEC and why I invited them to sponsor episodes of Fraudology. And there's actually so many things that I want to tell you and will tell you over the next several weeks. But the first thing I want to make sure that you hear about is their Trust Cloud. SPEC's Trust Cloud protects the integrity of the digital user while simplifying the risk process. It allows you to discover insights across the entire digital user experience. It allows you to catch attacks early. With access to full visibility, you can scan visitor behavior across their entire journey to catch the risk patterns that traditional fraud check APIs miss. Visualize the flow of attacks, identifying areas to catch them early, and leaving bad actors with nowhere to hide. It also allows you to start each journey with instant trust. You can boost platform integrity by instantly welcoming return customers to their personal account experience, while your trust platform invisibly screens for signs of compromise and abuse. It also allows you to remove friction for good customers and increase conversions. By using a single source of truth, you can detect evolving fraud attacks and identify conversion drop-offs and optimize your payment strategy. The bottom line is when you're able to to see every customer's behavior from the moment that they enter your website until the time of checkout or when they open up a new account, you can identify that before the fake account is made, before the transaction is even made and now you've got a fraud transaction in your platform. It's honestly game-changing and I'm really excited for more people to learn about it. So to learn more about Spec and this new technology and especially their Spec Trust Cloud, go to www.specprotected.com. So let's go a little bit more into these all-in-one bots. You shared a little bit about them. They are something that I see a lot about. Um, I also know that there are some pretty good blog articles um, about all-in-one bots for botters, actually, but, you know, that talk about how to get around, you know, bot detection company A and bot detection company B. And, you know, here's how we get around bot detection company C. I actually ended up following one of them in Telegram or Discord and not even realizing it because I didn't really know what AIO stood for, mm-hmm. but I knew that they were using several keywords that in their you know dialogue that I care about very much, whether it's, you know, credential stuffing or ATO or sneaker bots, whatever they were. And um, I think it was you that helped me like this was months ago where you were like, oh yeah, all in one. And I'm like, oh, that's what AIO stands for. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, shared a little bit of them higher level, but how would a company or a financial institution know if they were getting hit by an all-in-one bot? Or what does that, you know, what does that look like? What are they, what are they doing? And, you know, who are the targets, all of that? So there's a couple ways to, to go at it. Like I'll say a little bit about how we do it at SPEC, right? So like if you were in a room 
with, you know, we'll say a hundred people and you thought that there was a werewolf in the room, right? But like, we're not in the middle of like a full moon and like, like, like forgive this metaphor. You would find out really, really quickly if there was a werewolf in the room by blowing on a dog whistle, right? And so like what we have found is that like when we get into a spot where something gets a little bit suspicious, we will start to feed poison data that like a normal user wouldn't understand. But in the response itself, it confuses these bots and they kind of like tip their hand a bit in terms of like, oh, you like a regular user would not have interacted or winced at that thing, but these these type of bots do. Now, outside of like having the type of tech that we do specifically to address these type of things, one of the biggest indicators is going to be understanding where you have, I'm going to call them like long-lived user sessions. These might look like site scrapers. These might look like search index crawlers. Uh, but effectively, you know, for these uh, all-in-one bots to do their best, they need to understand how your site changes. You does your inventory update, do like different items you know, come up, come down. Are you going into or out of a maintenance mode? Uh, you know, are you like, uh, you know, some bot detection providers, they like flip on like a hard enforce mode and flip it off or they'll make you go through like extra steps to, to log in during like key sales events. Uh, they'll be watching out for those things. So it starts with like this persistence of uh, on your site where effectively, you know, there are the individual agents that are replicating like real users, but also there's like this overarching kind of like effectively like constant scraping of your site to understand how things are changing. Like if you feel that pressure, you likely, they likely those are giving information to the individual agents that are navigating to the site. And that's like one of the first ways to do it. Unfortunately, all of that signal, all of that information never makes it to a fraud team, right? So like, it's really important that you have like a great relationship with your InfoSec team to understand what that pervasive uh, type of pressure looks like. Yeah. And usually what ends up happening is that the fraud team just sees things downstream, right? Like mm -hmm. once the purchase is made, once, you know, credential stuffing is happening and there's been reports of account takeover or, you know, once there's been a huge spike in account creation with, a bunch of gobbledygook emails, right? Then it's like, wait a second, we think we had a bot problem. And then you go back to InfoSec and they don't always know what you need to know. I feel like we speak very different languages and care about very different things in both scenarios. And so it can be a real challenge to have those conversations because fraud needs wants to know like what's happening and what's the motivation of the person and what's the information and what's their email and what's this and what's that. And InfoSec doesn't usually even have that information. They have totally different information. So how do you recommend having those conversations and asking InfoSec the questions that you need to know to know if you're having, you know, these type of bots? I mean, part of it is uh, this is a weird thing to say, just like immense amount of empathy, right? So like, for, you know, for your InfoSec leader, like your InfoSec leader does care about bots, but they also care about ransomware and business email compromise and endpoint security and a, like a huge, like long tail of like super nerdy things that keep them up at night. Uh, but like ultimately are like are tantamount to the security. They're also worried about people clicking on bad PDFs, right? Like, so just like even like the wildest things that you can imagine, like they, you know, there. So while bots may be a big part of an attacker's toolkit that you care about in the fraud world, it's like one kind of like concern there. 
I think the other piece of it being that like while attacks have gotten more sophisticated, infosec budgets have actually come down a lot. Investment in, in like new infosec technology has also come down a lot. Uh, so they're having to do a lot more with less. Um, I I would kind of like really like uh, clue you into this, and I think it's a it's a weird thing to say, but I think it's important to say is that like I think for a time cybersecurity was like really really sexy, and now we're kind of getting into this era where everyone's like, oh yeah, cybersecurity is part of IT. So kind of like the same organization that like, you know, makes sure that it writes down the serial number of your laptop is also the organization that is like looking for, you know, bots on your perimeter or making sure that, you know, like the necessary protections are in place. So InfoSec is having to fight for budget. They're having to, you know, they're, they're asking to move programs forward to make the, the business more secure. And in this environment where breaches are happening all the time and most companies aren't suffering long-term consequences for a lot of those breaches. You know, a lot of leadership is saying, so what, and shrinking InfoSec's budget anyway. So I think like part of it coming into is like, I think from a fraud perspective, like we imagine that the InfoSec you know, team kind of like sits on a higher chair uh, than we do in the fraud space. And they, they really don't. Um, they, they really don't. Well, and you're right that that used to be the case though, right? Like it used to be the case that if there were you know, two needs on the table and it was, oh, well, we could be, you know, we could get a data breach at some time versus we are getting attacked through our payment system right now that we might be breached at some time would get more attention and more resources thrown at it. And as uh, a lifelong fraud fighter, but certainly in my adult life, you know, long fraud fighter, I heard myself and I can hear a lot of listeners saying like, oh, you have to do more with less, like welcome to our world. But if you're used to having to do less with more, that can be a really challenging thing and can sometimes break your brain, you know, because you're not used to being scrappy the way that we've had to be. You know, you're used to just getting handed budget and getting to, you know, get whatever shiny object you wanted. And now it's like, oh, well, and and I've also noticed several, I wouldn't necessarily say CISOs, but just people in info security that just don't seem to have been keeping up with what's going on these days either. Like they don't understand what types of bots are being, are out there and what types of bots, what they're doing and, you know, how they're attacking the business. And sometimes they don't always want to understand. And that's a challenge too. Yeah. And and I think they're, Again, like being able to have this like very like genuine kind of vulnerable dialogue with your infosec leaders is super important in the sense that like, you know, a lot of CISOs don't care. I mean, they care about business problems, but like they don't actually care about business problems. And like, and that's okay, right? Like they care about technology problems. So for them, it's just like, hey, if we don't stay on top of patches, if we don't stay on top of our perimeter security, if we don't stay on top of like our security awareness, our training, our visibility and observability, you know, if we're not, you know, monitoring data exfiltration, then like, then at its core, there's a problem with our technology and they're trying to go and solve these technology problems. The downstream of that is the business problem. You know, the downstream of that is, you know, a poor reputation means that buyers or, uh, you know, two of our products don't come back. Or like the downstream of that is, oh, we have a lot more junk traffic hitting our checkout and our payment economics are hosed, right? So like they they don't live in the world of what the business problem with. And again, like I wouldn't say like try to make that their problem. I think you're going to lose that fight every single time because they kind of feel like, oh, I've got enough on my brain already. Um, but just like understand that like you're probably not going to get them to care and that's, o- and that's okay, right? And just kind mm-hmm. of like create that division of labor. One thing that I will say that is an incredibly important thing for uh, especially fraud people to, to consider is that your average InfoSec team is probably much more technically savvy than the fraud team when it comes to the core technology. Mm-hmm. 
but they're not nearly as good as uh, fraud teams when it comes to data and turning data into business decisions. And it is such a strong suit for fraud fighters. And I feel like fraud fighters feel like they're Mm -hmm. kind of like the tail end of it and kind of get told that like, oh, like, you know, you guys just worried about loss prevention or you guys just like a cost of doing business. But like the reality is the data that fraud teams do have access to and their ability to turn that into something that shapes the business and business outcomes is actually magical. Uh, And then being able to like, hey, this is the thing that I have to trade with, right? Like this is what I'm coming to barter with. It's like I can turn data into a huge impact for the business. But like on your end, like I need your help from a technology perspective to make sure that the data that I'm getting is complete and clean and tells me what's going on. That is a really good pro tip. What would be an example of that as far as playing that out a little bit more? Um, What type of data and in what form would infosec be interested in you bartering with so i will say that like one of the best things to do is to like and this is it sounds like a little bit reductive but just like work with me my experience working with infosec teams is they love like a conceptual model right so like i would i would take the time make a slide or or like whatever your your company's equivalent is to bring to them uh and like on one end of the slide it's like all right here's what you're doing this like the perimeter security the bot detection here's what you're doing here right there's some like anomaly detection of like hey like weird interactions that application that maybe lives a little bit in your court and maybe lives a little bit in our court with like behavioral biometrics and things like that Mm -hmm. and then here's core fraud right? Like here's taking identity and payment information, using that to make risk decisions, right? The better we integrate these upstream and downstream, the better both of us will do. So Mm. you will know, like when you let people inside the the digital customer experience, when you let people inside the business, we can tell you what the outcome of that is, which you don't get otherwise, right? When you make decisions about who gets let inside and who doesn't and who's beating on the glass, when you tell that to us so that we can link that and correlate to that to things that do get inside the business, that helps us do better, right? And like it, being able to like give them that model and like an integration there is tough. I want to be like real clear, like integration there is tough, but where that gets done, the the upside is enormous. Like that's where you get to these more like, uh, I hate to use them as like, you know, kind of like the, uh, the golden child here, but that's where you get to these like Amazon-like experiences where you let people through the door faster and easier because you have so much more confidence Right, because you've seen them before, right? Because InfoSec knows, oh, that's the email address we've seen before. That's the device we've seen before, rather than just this is another headless person that we don't know anything about. Yeah, and what that turns into, and like again, I was like, I'm kind of narking on uh, on like the InfoSec teams that I've met and loved. They are always fighting to justify the ROI of anything that they're doing because the things that they're doing are usually like hops and hops away from touching money, except for spending money, right? They're really good at spending money. They're like not so great at like communicating how spending money either protects money or unlocks revenue. Uh, But fraud teams are great at that. Like that's the only language that we speak. Because we have to. Um, Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So being able to, which like, you know, it's just like one, like an amazing thing for us, but also two, like we're always having to fight to justify. Somehow InfoSec teams have figured out how to get things approved without being able to justify costs. So like whatever we can learn from them and kind of pull back into the fraud, like teach us your secrets um, is just like, is an incredible uh, thing to move forward. But like they want that, right? They want to be able to understand like, hey, if I'm able to, uh, if I'm able to pull down the number of times that someone gets challenged or pushed into, you know, the wrong, you know, the wrong scheme, or if I'm able to more accurately detect these like more clever style of bots that are able to you know, kind of like guess their way through, 
um, then that will turn into a better customer experience, more returning customers and better outcomes for the business. And providing them with that language that we've had to learn as far as, hey, that was better outcomes for the business. Here's an ROI for that, right? Here's how, you know, if we can take the average order value or the average um, lifetime value of a customer and say, well, if we put them in the wrong scheme, we could lose, potentially lose their lifetime value. There's an ROI for you. So teaching them a little bit of what we've learned to be able to, to work together and have more of that seamless experience sounds like, I mean, sounds pretty good. It sounds, you make it sound so easy, Nate. I mean, but I it's not, it's I mean <laughs> everyone's double booked on their calendars, like from day start to day end. Right. So like that, that's the hardest time, you know, I think generally like the best start point is like, how can you just make time to get together and talk about like the kind of like the common problems that you're trying to solve? Like we end up doing that organically at spec because of what we do. Um, but like even outside the context of interacting with us, like it's, it's really fundamental, you know, as a, as someone who's working in the fraud end of the world is like, oh, like, I don't think that the tools that I rely on to keep the business safe can trust the data I'm getting, right? And just being able to have that conversation mm. uh, with the InfoSec team so that they can like understand like, oh, the quality of the data that we're collecting and the quality of the way that we put that data together and provide that like deeper into, you know, our, our tech stack that, you know, that, that our fraud team uses and how important that is. I think this was last year, things the year before last, where like we first started to see these like shape-shifting attacks, uh, like they were basically just kind of brute forcing their way through address validation and a few other things. Mm. Uh, like, and like that was something that was so far upstream of, you know, uh, the responsibility of a fraud team that by the time it, it, you, it got to, it got to us, you were basically like cleaning up bad data to start with, right? And just like in, in living in that reality. So, just taking a step back a little bit and talking more specific about, you know, these, the capabilities of these bots, right? You know, they're called all in one bots. Obviously, they can do a lot of different things. And you touched on a few of them, but I just kind of wanted to go go through a few of those as far as, you know, purchasing, right? They can, you know, we see that either with card testing, or we see that with purchases, resellers, lots of resellers. Um, and that may not be fraud necessarily. That may not be on a, on a stolen payment method, but it could be abuse depending on the type of company you work for, whether it's an event ticketing or, you know, maybe a name brand luxury good, or, you know, there's a limited quantity and high demand of specific items. All of those things can really drive purchasing bots or sneaker bots. Um, there's also account creation bots, right, that are just continually creating new accounts and with lots of bad data. Um, obviously, I mean, all of them are, right? They're all just creating or using garbage emails and garbage, you know, information just to get, you know, the purchases through, which is why you talk about the quality of data. And then, you know, there's account takeover bots where, you know, they're really doing credential stuffing or brute force. But when they're these all-in-one bots, they're also morphing, right? So it's not the exact same script every time, which is one reason why it's hard for InfoSec to identify them. But it also can be difficult for fraud to you know, identify them because all of a sudden they aren't using the exact same scheme for an email anymore, or they're you know doing things just a little bit differently. But I know especially with you know this mother of all breaches that came out that I talked about last week, people companies are seeing credential stuffing just go through the roof just in the last couple of weeks. You know that would be something that obviously we could blame on all in one bots too. 
Um, what else would you add to that list? I think the the main thing for these style uh, of attacks is that they are largely focused on the way the makers of these tools make money is by selling them to consumers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the people who are buying and using these tools are spending between 50 and uh, usually 50 and a hundred bucks a month uh, in order to get access to them. And they're paying for them for like, for them, they, they treat it like a Netflix subscription, right? Uh, you know, it's just uh, like a little bit heavier there, but for them, what they are looking for uh, is for uh, basically opportunities to get money for nothing, like for almost no risk. So there's a couple different ways. So like the way that we tend to think about it is there is arbitrage, which is generally like when you're going to, sell something at a retail cost that they'll be able to sell marked up. Um, there is money laundering, uh, which is, you know, they're effectively just trying to get money off of a stolen card and resell it somewhere else. Uh, triangulation is like, kind of like the core piece of this, which is fun because you're basically like run one bot on eBay, sorry, eBay, uh, and then like another bot at a retailer. Uh, and like, they're literally talking to each other about where a purchase gets made in one area. And then, you know, where they'll use a stolen credit card to get the other. Um, and then the other two being, uh, basically promotion abuse and refund abuse, um, Refund abuse is really interesting in the sense that uh, it is uh, account linking and fake accounts are usually like preludes to that you mm-hmm. know, or, or even taking over an account would be a prelude to that. Mm. Promotion abuse, it's a lot of fake accounts. Uh, so like there's some really interesting stuff there. Some of those bots are really simple. Like uh, in, if I wanted to get, you know, uh, let's just say like $15 off of DoorDash for the rest of my life, like that's as simple as opening up a discord channel and typing in like a command and it just happens. All right. So like it's uh, anyway, so like, and again, I, I know I'm, I don't mean to kind of like, this isn't a shame thing. It's just like, this is just well, no, out you're, there. You're using yeah. examples, right. Yeah. But like those companies and all their competitors are also being used for these exact same purposes. It's not just DoorDash or just eBay. It's there though. That's kind of, they're the market leaders in their area. And so it's a good example for people to understand, right? But in meal delivery or, you know, in several types of industries online that have, that basically have a customer acquisition cost, you know, where they're giving a promo code away whenever there's a, a new account open. And oftentimes they're also giving a promo to somebody who referred them, you know, then that, those get used up pretty quickly and you can just create new accounts all day long and link them all together. And then, yeah, just pile up those $15 or those $10 for meal delivery. And same with refund fraud, right? Like that's obviously, you know, kind of in my wheelhouse. And um, when Patrick was on, uh, I guess last year, that sounds like so long ago, but it was just a couple months ago, we talked about how uh, Chargelytics created uh, in partnership with a couple of just rock star merchants who have been dealing with refund fraud for so long. Um, we created a module on Specs platform for refund uh, claims fraud abuse. And I'm super proud of it because I really think it's top of market for, you know, being able to identify and understand, you know, it's using the insights that spec can have throughout the customer journey and putting it in the place where a decision needs to be made, whether, you know, a refund is going to be given without the item in perfect condition back and, you know, that kind of thing. And so in all those ways, you can identify, it makes sense that bots would be used because, it's all about speed. It's all about, you know, quantity, right? And trying to get money for the least amount of work. Honestly, a lot of it's convenience, right? Like, I, I think there's this, 
uh, you know, like you mentioned previously, there's like this, there's different types of bots. There's like these like fast, high volume bots where it's just like, I want to do the most damage in the least amount of time because time is going to be the thing that like, you know, they've, they've left this thing insecure and I'm going to just like take it for all it's worth before they figure it out and shut it down. Um, you know, there are the ones that are like, okay, like I'm going to do that, but slower, but like, just so I don't trip the rules. And then like, there's the other ones where it's just like, it's going to learn its own way through like these all in ones, like they'll learn their own way through. And like the big thing is like the people who are using these, they're not very sophisticated, right? You know, these are a lot of times these are like teenagers, the effort is low. So a lot of the development on the bot side has been like, hey, how can we lower the effort to use this thing? Because the lower I push this effort, the more I can get people to sign up for monthly memberships to keep paying for this thing or paying access to this group, which has like a bunch of bots like built into their uh, effectively uh, like, like a discord server, right? So that turns into this thing where you start to <laughs> democratize these attack bots, uh, you know, or it's a, a case where it almost starts to get normalized, uh, right? Or if the, there's no law enforcement, and if it's this easy to use, how could this be, you know, uh, immoral or illegal or, uh, you know, <laughs> or, We're talking or, about a Shark Tank episode that I talked about a few months ago. I was, I happened to be out of town with someone who had been in one of the industries that has a very high amount of resellers when that episode came out and I thought that their head was going to explode. Like, you know, how is this okay? You're basically, you know, democratizing this and saying it's okay to commit abuse, right? Or, you know, anything that can be used to commit abuse could also be used to commit fraud. So, and vice versa, right? But yeah, it's completely just become this, if you can't beat them, join them kind of thing. Yeah, you know, and it's unfortunate that that's like normalizing that way. Uh, like there are many people in my life who's like, hey, they really want to buy a certain like goods. Like console like, or Yeah, like or gaming consoles right. or shoes, exactly. Um, like my wife, right, was like, hey, it's like, I really want to get Beyonce tickets or I really want to see like Justin Timberlake at SAP. Or it's like, but like, you know, all the inventory and the pre-sales like disappeared instantly. Is like, yeah. Um, so by the way, my wife is my best friend, but I am team Brittany all the way. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like we get to the spot where like we normalize that like if you want to just engage with these brands and and to like get access to their products or the you know the events that they're selling access to that like botting becomes normal and that is uh it's like a really i'm gonna say scary i'm not gonna put that in there but like you know i think as the people who have to be on the other end of it and are tasked with stopping it um you know that's uh, that's pretty interesting i think the other piece of it is like having a real conversation with the business leaders in terms of like do you actually want to stop all these bots or do you only want to stop the bots that you know destroy our margin or create a really negative customer experience right like if we sell out of inventory and it all goes to resellers and we know that who they are so we can like you know prevent taking returns uh like do you really care right and like sometimes being able to have that elevated kind of conversation with your business leader can help them maybe get away from any like notion that like oh like fraud is out there to like stop business like no like if you if you want bots to come buy mm -hmm. all the inventory but you just want to protect yourselves from a potential negative downside if they want to return it all or use a bunch of stolen credit cards or like abuse marketing promotions let's have that conversation yeah i, I remember you know, clearly when it was clear that the economy was going down and talking about change in the metaphorical couch cushions that, you know, fraud fighters could find and, you know, help their business with. And one of them was, you know, if you have resellers on your site and you've been stopping them, 
have the conversation with your senior leadership of, hey, do you still want me to stop them? Because there are you know, parts of the business. And I've been a part of these conversations with, you know, a handful of my clients where parts of the business are like, Hey, I don't really care who these go to as long as our sales are up, right? Our sales have two X, three X. I don't care. Now I can argue that and say, well, you don't have a direct relationship with your customers then, you know, who are you sending these marketing emails to saying, Hey, we've got this new item. You're sending it to a bunch of garbage emails that bought your products, not hardcore fans, because the relationship that your hardcore fans have to get your products is, you know, with a third party marketplace, so to speak, you know, so I can have that conversation, but you know, there are definitely some companies that are like, Eh, you know, and oftentimes if they don't own their own brand items and they're selling, you know, they're, they themselves are a form of a reseller or a wholesale, you know, they're selling retail, they may not care as much. But then there are other brands that actually make their, you know, the companies that resell them sign an agreement and say, you're not allowed to do this. There's been a very popular shoe brand that came out and fired a popular retailer that was selling their shoes because they said, Hey, you're not doing a good job on resellers. You're letting them go out the door. We don't like that. There's been, you know, lots of different things like that, but then, but you're right. It's a good conversation to have. And I think that that also goes to another kind of philosophical question because in a lot of cases, these all-in-one bots are mimicking human behavior, right? And they are slowing down now and maybe just doing, you know, one transaction or one account login an hour rather than a hundred or a thousand. And so because of that, InfoSec or and or the bot detection company says, oh, that's not a bot. Bots move really fast. That's not a bot. But their behavior is abusive or fraud, right? So then you get into this philosophical, you know, thought of like, which do we need to pay attention to more? What's more important? Yeah, and I think like the the core question, uh, I guess, like the way that I would answer this is like in a world where you can't trust the data that is being given to you. So if you can't trust this bot or not bot signal, or you can't trust that this like very human-like behavior actually came from a like legitimate uh, like buyer of your products or your services, um, then it goes into is like, is the identity of a person, the information they fill out on a form or is it what they do? Right. Uh, you know, so I think kind of like getting into this uh, kind of like more uh, kind of like peeling this back. If we, start with, you know, on one far end, uh, like the application protection and the bot detection and like all that automation stuff that your InfoSec team does. And then maybe they care a little bit about uh, like abuse or like application abuse, but application abuse kind of has this overlap with something that fraud teams know really well called behavioral biometrics, right? And then downstream from that, you have like lookups for reputation uh, and risk from consortium networks. If we're looking at things like payment data or, you know, uh, or emails or, you know, like harder identifying factors. So being able to draw that line all the way from the, okay, well, you let this in and this is what happened, right? So if I give you this information, if I can push this further upstream, how would that help you make better decisions further up? Because again, like largely the InfoSec team is solving technology problems. They don't, uh, they don't concern themselves with the business outcome. So like you have to kind of make it a business problem back up to them as a technology problem of like, hey, like I'm going to give you some information. I need you to like give me, uh, if it's not bots, be like tell me what about these things, you know, coming in from the edge, uh, you know, coming in from outside of our, uh, you know, kind of like our, our safe perimeter would have maybe tipped your hand in the, in this cases that these w- weren't going to be good customers. Hmm. 
So does the type of sophistication of bots that, you know, a company is seeing matter when it comes to identifying a bot detection tool? I mean, I guess what I mean is like, do you need to, what it really comes down to is like how long it takes a hacker to retool something and improve a tool versus how long it's going to take the company to do it. You know, because it seems like in 2024, we should just all kind of assume that because of the proliferation, ease of use and inexpensive nature of bots that, you know, the botters will upgrade quickly if they see ones that get ID'd, right? So you set the bar and we're used to when we're putting in fraud detection products, you know, setting the bar and hoping that the bar is a couple of stages ahead. But what I've seen in my own experience is you set the bar with bots and they just go right around it because they can find out very easily which tool you're using. And for most of the traditional bot detection tools, they have workarounds. Yeah, and I think the, we'll speak, and this is, kind of goes into a bit of like why spec is built the way it is. Like an important part of this is you need to have some, if not all of your component of the, your defense be invisible. Uh, like everything that you expose to a, a botter or an attacker uh, is data that you're giving them, which gives them more of an advantage. Uh, so like being able to make sure that like from a technology perspective, you're doing this in a way that is invisible is super important. You're like reducing both the information that they have to work with as well as like being, you know, removing their ability to test your defenses and see how they respond, which I think is like one of the most important parts of it. We do a little bit further than that at spec and it's a little harder for most teams to do uh, but like if you have the ability to we, we call it honeypotting but if you have the ability to take an attacker and instead of blocking them you just put them on their own customer journey where everything kind of appears to be fine but whenever they try to push the big risky buttons there's like an invisible plastic cover that keeps them from doing it that is incredible uh, because it it separates out the thing that tipped away the, how you detected them and the action they're trying to take that you don't want them to do. One of the, and, and this is today, this may not be true in five years or three years, but today one of the very specific weaknesses of AI is they have really, really crappy short-term memory. So like, you know, they're, they're great at looking at like a larger pre-trained model, um, but if you uh, give them a piece of feedback, they'll forget it after they've iterated through seven other pieces of feedback after that. Um, so the more that you separate the detection from the enforcement, the harder it is for those type of tools to learn their way around it. Interesting, right. So if you're just kind of making them go around in a circle, they don't always realize that they're going in a circle if they have to take more than seven turns. Mm-hmm. Right. So you get to a spot where it's, you know, if they take 12 left turns and end up where they started, um, they forgot that they took 12 left turns. They just knew the last thing that they did was take a left turn. Sounds like my dog. That <laughs> 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 is short-term memory. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. And that, that explains why, you know, why it's so important to be able to not give them any information because I do, th it does seem like a lot of them, you know, especially these ones that the AI bots that are really like, adapting to a company's system and, you know, targeting the implementation point or the integration point with a third party fraud provider, for instance, you know, they're relying on that information that they're getting back in order to adjust and align and shapeshift, right? And if your systems are set up to give them feedback, whether that feedback is no, we detected you somehow, or 
you know, something else like or asking them a question or step up or something like that, they now know, oh, I hit a wall. They now know, okay, they ID'd me somehow. How did they ID me? Okay, we're going to figure out how to go around that. If they don't know that you identified them and you're just kind of putting them in this box in this quarantine or, you know, honeypotting them, so to speak, then they're not committing any damage. They're not, you know, upping your authorization rates and, you know, all the prices of payments if it's card testing or, you know, all the other, you know, reselling and all those other, if that have to be canceled and everything else, you're not doing that if you're avoiding all of those costs, if you're just kind of putting them off to the side and making them take 12 left turns. Totally. Yeah. It's just like, don't train your attackers, right? Like, um, so uh, I have two dogs. They uh, like famously, my dogs run my house. I just live in it. Um, so and I both. Yeah. They, they will behave badly outside on a walk. Um, I can't scold the, I can't take them back to the house and then scold them and like not treat them because they've already forgotten by the time they get there. Right. Like if I want to, if I want to train my dog to like be better, like I, like in the moment they need to get like that instructive feedback. Well, in the case of like an attack tool or an attacker, you don't want to train them. Right. So like, so, uh, (laughs) you know, so it's very important that like the, the separation between the thing that they did, uh, that, you know, kind of uh, tip them off is just very, very separate, um, from when they actually like uh, see the consequence of that. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, why are a, well, I guess that you kind of answered it a little bit, but you know, why are all in one bots, you know, even though you say that like the people behind them aren't very sophisticated, they are often, you know, purchasing sophisticated technology that were created by developers. Um, but why are, especially if they're, you know, not sophisticated, why are the all in one bots difficult for traditional bot detection companies to identify? Um, or, you know, how are these newer bots able to go? you know, less detected by traditional bot detection. I mean, I, I think a big piece of this is the premiums that are associated with this. So all of the all-in-one bots are like a subscription-based model. So it's like a Netflix-like model to, to rent these bots. Um, the people who are making a lot of money, people who are paying their rent off of botting um, are paying for subscriptions to many of them uh, at, a, at a given point in time. And there is a dedicated development team that is maintaining specific models for specific retailers and ticketing sites. And they were like pushing updates to them continually. If we roll it back five years, most of the bots that were being used kind of like pre all like the, I would say pre 2020, where largely they were like security and pen testing tools, right? It was these open source tools like Century MBA, which is like, oh yeah, this is the team that uh, the tool the InfoSec team uses to like test for vulnerabilities in the login. Uh, and like attackers were just literally using that uh, as their way to go forward. So for an attacker, it's like, hey, this is free. Like, why would I spend 50 bucks for this, you know, a month for a thing that I can get for free and just like load up scripts and run like a big dumb attack. But now we have really sophisticated tools that are being continually updated and then made user friendly enough to distribute out to a huge base of folks. So like, even while it might seem like a single attack tool might be running, you know, 10 agents. So just like like 10 AI agents on your site doing something, if that's distributed out across 500 people, uh, like all of a sudden this thing that like really looks like one attack an hour, right, uh, it is actually a much higher volume of that. You have hundreds. And also being real, like if you are, let's say, you know, completing 20,000 orders a day, uh, it does not actually take a ton of successful, uh, like bad orders for your, you to have a very bad day. Hmm. 
so I mean, you talked a little bit about how spec has identified this activity. Was this something you set out to do from the beginning? Like, did you mean to detect bots? Oh, oh, hell no. Right. Like the thing that we did originally and like, you know, so Patrick and I came, came from eBay originally. Right. Um, so love the team that are doing amazing stuff, but, but, you know, at eBay, it famously took us a year to get data from eBay to eBay. Right. So we're like, okay, like if we're trying to solve the problem of getting good, clean, unblocked, you know, unaltered data from everywhere from inside of the customer experience, you know, everywhere from like inside of like your core flows, and making sure that all runs together, like that was, you know, originally the problem that we set out to solve. What we found is like, yes, it's hard to move around data inside of an organization, especially when engineering resources are doing something else. But like a, a more prevalent problem that we bumped into that a lot of people were suffering from is that the data on the front end, you know, the data that you know they're, they're relying on is being manipulated or blocked on the attack side. Uh, you know, whether those are directed attacks or whether those were uh, like these like all in one bots or something similar that were basically reverse engineering and learning their way past defenses. Uh, and like we we started to see that, I would say, like summer of last year. Uh, and then just as we started solving those sort of problems, like, oh, we're just like helping people make better decisions immediately and learn from that feedback just because we have complete connected and like clean data uh, as a start point for everything. So this was an accident, obviously. I mean, but do you now, I mean, a good accident, obviously, and, and I know that from talking to some of your customers who, you know, have came to you with other issues and came to the platform and then realized, oh, you can find that too? Well, yeah, because we're looking at the entire end-to-end customer journey and we can kind of see behind the scenes and we've looped all the data together. We have a clear picture of what's happening at any given time and we can identify the anomalies in different ways. Um, so would you now say that spec is, you know, a bot detection product? So genuinely, I would say yes, like I'm happy to be inside of that box. The reality is the people who love us the most are the fraud team, right? So yeah. like, like, we have every conversation we have is with the fraud team first, not the tech team first, because like, we care about the business problem being solved. You know, bots are a part of it. And you have to solve for bots in order to solve for this, like ultimately. Uh, so like, so to answer your question, yes, but like, we're doing it much more so in the sense of like, what's the actual business problem we're solving? How can we you know, help push the business forward as opposed to, hey, here's like a technical pressure on uh, you know, our technical architecture and how can we make that go away? Hmm. So what question should someone ask of a prospective bot service to know if they if that service can or can't identify the types of bots that you know a company is experiencing, or really just assuming that they're all all in one bots, because that's really you know those are the bots that are going undetected the most right now. It really seems like it's trial and error because every company that provides you know bot detection says that they can identify all bots, right? So, um, you know, how are you? What are some questions people can ask of prospective or current bot services um, to know if they can identify all in one? Or or if, you know, all-in-ones are just going to figure out how to go around them. And the important thing here is that like a all-in-one bot doesn't look like a bot. Like it'll never register as a bot for any of like the bot protection providers that you're kind of like out and after. So like the, like the start point really is like as you're doing a bot provider analysis, 
If the InfoSec team is doing that in isolation of the fraud team, you already messed up, right? Um, so like, <laughs> that's, that's the, like, you, you need to have a seat at the table there. And like, and that's like the first thing there. Like the second is like, get references and like, don't get references of the person who bought it. And like, that's going to be the thing, right? It's like, like the jelly there, but like get references from a fraud leader. Yes. Uh, about like their their key areas of like where they have driven results for them specifically. Because like what I will tell you is that bot providers, like when they start to fail or fall over, they're not proactively switched out by the by the CISO or the IT leader unless it's like a volume problem where it's like hurting the, the organization itself. If it's because it's driving some sort of fraud downstream, the business has to complain to InfoSec before InfoSec will go out and look for other solutions. So it's really important that as you're talking to them that you get that continuity. The follow-up on that, right? And this, will, this varies from business to business, but like now you as a fraud leader talking to a bot provider, a solution for that. How long does it take them to retool? Right? Can you like tell me times like, hey, like we're under attack. We're seeing it. these are like very clearly like we're seeing this big spike in you know, inventory issues or checkout issues or payment defects. Uh, how long does it take them to respond to that? Uh, like that's I think like a huge piece of it. Um, and then like the uh, the last bit I would say is, is pretty important is like outside of how long does it take them to respond to, to those things, what data are they using to predict problems before they happen? Um, so one of like the most common issues with bots, uh, bot providers is that they will add latency and actually slow down the experience. So they're really narrow and selective about where they deploy. Uh, so the actual data that they're operating off of is rather thin. Uh, so it's like really understanding like where are you collecting data to help you understand how the interaction from this person like deviates from uh, you know a good user from a bad user. Like the watchword that you're going to be looking for is like if they talk about some sort of like something too technical uh, or it's like, oh yeah, like we're looking at like uh, the gyrometer of a device and uh, like leveraging uh, like our, uh, you know, our darknet watch lists and like that kind of stuff. Uh, that is, uh, it's an interesting feature, but it's probably not the thing that's actually going to get you the outcome that you want. Um, if they actually like the, if you ask that question, the response you should get back is a question. Like mm-hmm. they should ask you, what is your user experience look like? Like, what is like that customer journey look like? Tell me about like the core flow that your users go through, because if they're going to tell you about like this mystery wonder signal that is going to like solve all problems for you without understanding how good users actually use your application, uh, it's, it's probably not a great fit. That's really good advice. Um, one question I have for you, you know, on that second part, as far as like how long, you know, asking a potential bot detection company how long it takes for them to respond or retool, is that something that they'll answer honestly? You'll figure that out with references. Like you're you're gonna figure that out with references, right? Generally. <laughs> that will be a pain point for any of the references. Um, so like, as long as you can get an honest reference out of that, you'll be in pretty good shape. One of the things that, you know, is a great like follow-up to that is 
okay, so if I have an issue, what's the reporting mechanism? And like, you know, how many business days until you would turn that around, right? And if you get an answer back of like, well, our platform automatically learns from, you know, or you get something back, it's like, oh, yeah, like, well, we incorporate that feedback. And, you know, that will like reflect in our like our regular model updates, like you, you'll get a lot of things about like, you know, oh, we just kind of turn the crank on this, like, mm. if you are the kind of business that has, uh, I'm going to say it's just kind of like a persistent threat for those type of things, like you should have a little bit more or maybe expect a little bit more uh, in terms of the type of like care and feeding that you get, you know, specifically from that vendor. Right. And that vendor should be asking you, you know, what the business outcomes are that you want and what your customer journey looks like and what they're doing so that they can provide the right answer rather than just saying, oh, our tool just automatically does it. They should be asking, you know, well, what are you hoping to have happen and, and what can happen and asking questions about your business to be able to make sure that they can give you the right answer. And also, you know, so that they understand it sounds like, you know, one of the challenges there, and maybe it's because maybe it's a feature, not a bug of, you know, bot detection traditionally living within InfoSec is it sounds like traditional bot detection companies aren't always thinking about the business use case and they aren't always thinking about the business, you know, issues and problems just like InfoSec, right? And so that can be a challenge when, you know, the fraud team is having to get involved because they're seeing the the outcomes and it's costing the business hundreds, if not millions of dollars in different ways. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think this is and I, I don't mean this to as any sort of negative. It's just like, this is a practice. It's not great. Um, if you look at like a, a an RFP for bot detection, like one of the things that InfoSec leaders will ask for is like they will list out different attack tools and like, well, the success criteria is they're able to you know detect these five attack tools. I'm like that is like one, most of the attack tools that I'll see up there have been around for a decade. And like two, like that is in, in what's called a negative security model, right? Where it's just like, oh, like we only, you know, if we if we say that we can detect signatures from these five tools, then we're good, uh, which is, uh, you, I think anyone can, can like attest to, it's like that is not indicative of like the quality of the solution or the performance that you're going to get over that over a long period of time. Well, right. Because especially if bots have changed so much and they're no longer attack tools since 2020, right. Uh, then you're asking, can you identify bots that were occurring five years ago? That's essentially what that question sounds like it's asking rather right. than can you detect the bots that we're going to be faced with every single day or at you know time of product launch or at the time of, you know, on sale or whatever that, you know, time is that you're most vulnerable to bots. Or yeah, or like, just kind of like, forget the bots. And just like, are you like, how are you going to help protect my business? Right? Uh, like, you know, I think that's like, really kind of like more the point of like, there's, it's very infosec thinking in the sense of, you know, uh, you know, I talk to my peers, here's a list of the most common attack tools that we're aware of in the market. And, you know, my security program is to raise the bar for attackers that like, you know, if any if attacker uses any of these tools, we'll catch them. Uh, but if they're not, then we won't. But like we raise the bar and like that style of thinking is, uh, is I think, normal for an infosec leader and kind of like the way they have to kind of structure their world and kind of advance these programs forward and get more mature. But it, it's not built with the needs of the business in mind. And like that's um, uh, that's why it's so important, for, I think, for fraud teams to be involved in, in those type of discussions. 
Wow. Well, as always, I mean, I always learn so much when I talk to you and um, the hour went by so quickly uh, and I had a feeling that that would happen. Uh, But this is super fascinating. And I think that a lot of people will find it interesting. And I also find it kind of funny that you guys have accidentally become a bot detection company because I think of you, you know, as an orchestration tool and as a platform to be able to see into the user journey and see throughout and and you do all those things too right and you also connect tools to your marketplace so that you know they don't or companies to your marketplace so that they don't have to API out to several different companies right and they can try out those vendors or try out those modules just by having you connect to them and your code list i mean it's it goes on and on and on where you, you don't have to have um engineers implementing spec because spec connects to the company and similar to the way that bot detection companies, you know, uh, d- attach to a company and just how quickly that can happen. So um, there's the list goes on and on for why I'm such a big fan of spec, but uh, the bot detection piece is so needed and so important. And I think there's such a lack of understanding about these all-in-one bots and what they're doing and how they're doing it and who's behind it and whose job it is to stop it. Right. Um, And we're seeing credential stuffing attacks in the news, you know, just over the last few weeks with 23andMe and with, you know, the iconic in Australia. And, you know, these are all things where it's like, well, who's going to be left holding the bag, right? Who's going to be the one blamed? Is it going to be the fraud team or is it going to be InfoSec? And, you know, it's, it's hard to know, right? It's going to depend on what the bot detection company says, right? Oh, well, there were no bots. So it wasn't InfoSec's fault. Well, but maybe there was, right? So the importance, I think you've really hit home the importance of the fraud team building a bridge with InfoSec. I think we've always kind of worked within our bubbles, um, but building that bridge and then kind of bartering that with them uh, with things that they want and need, um, I think is all really helpful information. Yeah, no, like absolutely have to be here. And like, and for what it's worth, whenever I'm speaking with CISOs or InfoSec leaders, they look at what we do at Spec. They're like, you guys are a fraud platform. It's like, yep, absolutely. Right. So like really the the reality is we live in this gap in the middle. Like we solve that middle space, but like depending on where you stand on the spectrum, like we live in kind of the other side and like, we're very happy to be there. Well, and I think that that's so needed because as more and more attack tools are technical, uh, Fraud teams need to have more technical solutions that understand the technology piece and can live in the middle of infosec and fraud and can detect both. Yeah, so super happy to be here. And like, Carice, uh, it's always fantastic to join you on this. And I think you know, thank you for uh, like your amazing questions. It's always amazing nerding out about this stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I think like being in this weird, wild industry, like especially in this era, has been a ton of fun. I, I think when we started the company four years ago, I don't think we could have imagined it would have been this fun. <laughs> but uh, I was like, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here. Well, and just like every other fraud fighter, your version of fun is not like most people's. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we can all relate to that. <laughs> and I know, you know, of a lot of the problems that you guys have gotten to solve and, and the companies you've gotten to work with. And I do understand why you call it fun. Um, it can also be seen as a massive challenge, but it's really fun to solve challenging problems. I think we can all relate to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it's a, uh, you know, you've run into our type of people when you just like give them a, you know, enormous, you know, dump from like a SQL query and then it was like, Ooh, data. And just sort of like go nuts. <laughs> right? <laughs> 
Yes, a hundred percent. Or like, yeah, somebody like speaks in the SQL query basically to explain a problem that they're having. And you're like, oh, okay, yep, I can follow that completely. And then I can know exactly what questions to ask you afterwards. (laughs) You're my people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you again so much for joining me. And thank you to SPEC for being such, you know, strong supporters of Fraudology. I just am so grateful for you guys. And I'm so lucky to work with companies that I really believe in and want to see succeed because I know how much you guys help your customers. So thank you again for everything. And I'll look forward to next time. It's always a pleasure, Reese. Thanks so much. Thank you. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.